All right, our text this morning is John 4. We are jumping back into a series we began in the fall in the book of John. Um, what a marvelous gospel message John is, and I would, I'm, I'm going to keep encouraging you, especially in the new year, if one of your resolutions or desires is to read more scripture, John is a wonderful place to jump in. Um, and John 4 is, is a beautiful story we'll jump into in just a few moments. I, uh, I'm, uh, the conversation that leads into this one Jesus has is with a man named Nicodemus. And if you'll remember that conversation, Nicodemus is like on one end of the spectrum of being important, religious, has, he's godly, and yet he comes to Jesus under the, you know, under the cloak of darkness uh, with a, some serious inquiry, and they have a conversation. And by the end of that conversation, you find that Nicodemus has to be born again, that even he doesn't have it all together. And then in an amazing contrast, we have this long conversation with this woman uh, in John 4, and it's such a beautiful picture. So I just want to invite you to understand that we are, uh, we are being called by John not just to be born again at conversion, but over and over through this amazing gospel, he's talking to people and he's saying, like, there's more to life. You know, he's saying dry bones, right? We call out to dry bones, come alive. I hope as you hear those songs, you're not thinking, ah, oh, that would be good for so-and-so over there. But you begin to realize, like, I want to come to life. I want my heart to be revived. I want the music of the gospel to beat again in my soul, or if it's never happened for the first time. So let's hear the word of God from John 4. We'll look at verses 1 through 30. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although John himself did not baptize, but, excuse me, only, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samarians, Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and all his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, you are seeking worshipers, and you have sent your Son on a rescue mission to seek us, and you have found us, Father. I pray for those here this morning who are found for revival for growth. And Lord, for those in the room who have never been found, who don't know you, maybe this would be the morning that they see your face and receive you. Holy Spirit, will you please attend to this message for your glory? Amen. It's a very serious passage, but I'm going to start with a joke. And you're not supposed to do that unless the joke ties into the content. It's actually a children's joke. Um, I think it was my cousin's son at a very young age, told the joke, and it involved the parent. Here's how it goes. The parent says, so the ch- for little children, this is funny, you can try this. What sound does a cat make? Meow. The, cat, the child responds. What sound does a doggy make? Rough. And at this point, you're hearing the joke, and you're kind of like, come on, I don't want to hear a kid make several noises, right? What sound does a cow say? Moo. And you're, right, you're getting the picture? What sound does a camel make? Water. Is that good? I like that joke because your, your er, my arrogance of like, I know the answer to each of these noises picks up as each noise comes. And then the camel one, I remember thinking, I, I don't know. I have no idea. Does anyone know what sound a camel makes? Water. Camels are thirsty. You are thirsty, right? We are uh, we are people who understand the concept of thirst. Um, I was at a meeting this week with a pastor friend, and we've had several meetings with this group recently, and he always has like a huge water bottle and like several drinks. And so finally, I, I just kind of said, why? why? He said, oh, I became dehydrated on a hike once, and I'll never be without water again. 
And it's true. When you've had that experience, you long to keep water sources close to you. And in our culture, water is very easy to get. And so we come to a passage like this and we think, oh, that's interesting. But we need to embrace the fact that Jesus is offering you and I something that is truly life-giving. We are made for living water. That is what we are made for. And Jesus, the only source of living water, will give you living water. So that's what we're going to process this morning. Um, I remember in seminary reading a great book on how to read narratives. And one of your goals when you read a Bible narrative is to kind of ask, who do I relate to in the passage? And here's a hint. Rarely, if ever, is it Jesus. Okay? Rarely. So in this story, don't think, maybe I'm Jesus, because you're not. So who? Is it the townspeople? Is it the disciples? I'm going to say it's this person. It's the woman. It's the outcast. It's the person who is clearly living out of a lifestyle of shame. I'm not saying we all have everything in common with her, but it will be helpful if we walk through this story in her shoes, and we're going to look at several things in her walk to faith. Okay? And I want to say, if you are here this morning and you're not a believer, these are the steps that you would go through to become a Christian. If you are here and you are a believer, these are the steps that you would go through to walk closer to the Father. Because John is constantly trying to get his followers, his, his audience, to press in to a deeper abiding relationship with Jesus. That's the goal until we go to glory. We're never going to not be thirsty, right? We're never going to not need water. So here's the first step, resistance. That's your first step. I want you all to understand, as you look at this woman, she's resisting Jesus, and so do you, okay? Where, how, why is she resisting Jesus? Uh, just a little bit of background on the, Samar- on the, on the region of Samaria. Uh, in 1 Kings, King Omri named the capital Samaria, which became the, really the name of the entire region, and it was captured by the Assyrians, right, in 1722, when, so there were the, the different captivities that took place. But that particular region, um, one of the strategies of the Assyrians would be they would take the, the upper uh, religious and intellectual and even um, maybe the, you know, the kings and queens, etc. So they took the upper class, if you will, into captivity, and they would leave the rest of the Israelites, but then they would send their people in to populate the area. So what you had was an intermarriage, interrelationship um, Carson, D.A. Carson says, after the exile, Jews returning to their homeland, they found the Samaritans were um, children of political rebels. They considered them racial half-breeds. Their religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. Um, and eventually, a, uh, around 400 B.C., there was a, a temple erected on Mount Gerizim, which is actually in our passage. So they basically took a lot of the Jewish religion with intermixed religion and kind of made their own way theologically. And so the Jews grew to where they really hated the Samaritans, hence the famous parable of the Good Samaritan, the one who surprisingly helped the Jew that was hurt, right? So Samaria is located, Jerusalem's in the southern part of Israel, Galilee's in the northern part, the Jordan River's on the, on the east side of the nation, and right in between is this region of Samaria, and if you wanted to go one direction or the other, you either traveled through Samaria or you crossed the Jordan and would travel in sort of Gentile territory to avoid the evil Samaritans. Well, Jesus and his disciples didn't have this view of Samaritans. And so they traveled right up into Samaria uh, to this, 
to this town, Sychar. And it's the place where Jacob's well was. Jacob dug a well and gave it at his death to Joseph. And this well was not only a well that had water, but it had a spring apparently that would keep feeding it so that for these many, many hundreds of years later, it still had an active water flow. Okay, very important to that region and to life in that area. And so that's where we are. And Jesus has now come into this town and is seated down, and he's tired. And it's important to know Jesus is a person. He was actually thirsty, right? Often in, the, in, in accounts where he meets people, it's with a need. Remember when he asked Peter to cast the nets? He was hungry. He asked Zacchaeus, take me to your house. He had needs. Here, he's thirsty, and he's actually needing water. And so this woman comes up, and he just simply says, give me a drink, Right? And you know her response if you read the story with me. She resists the request. Right? She says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And there's two realities for her that she's facing. One, she's Samaritan. John tells us Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Secondly, she's a woman. Later, when the disciples return in verse 27, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. There was actually a quote I came across in one of the commentaries. Here's a rabbinic citation. Here's the, the rule for men in that culture. One should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife. A lot of men are like, hmm, just kidding. And certainly not with somebody else's wife. And here's the reason, not because of morality, because of, because of the gossip of men. This fear of man, this culture had created this really second-class person, a woman. And as you know, Jesus explodes that wide open in this story and in many others and finds immense value in her. And in fact, she's the one we'll later see that leads this town and this region to him as, a Christian, as Christians. So this is the, I just want to highlight one thing, though, resistance. Why would she be resistant? Because of these facts, because of the fact that she's a woman and she's Samaritan and she knows her story, which we're going to get to in a few moments, it's hard for her to believe that this person could provide her water. Remember what he says when she says, how is it that you talk to me? And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's, a, that's quite the offer, right? Right? And look at what she says in verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where will you get this living water? Do you hear what's going on there? It's, um, this is crazy. Tell me more. She has a desire for what he's talking about. There's a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a there's skepticism and resistance, but she's actually tuning into the possibility and I would ask you this question, as you hear the gospel presented, as you sing the songs we're singing, as you hear about the possibility of a, a heart flowing with living water, I wonder if you're picking up on your resistance. Is it really that amazing? Is it really possible? Can people actually change? Could marriages heal, parents heal, children heal? Can broken places be restored? Is this a real thing? I hope you're just picking up on the resistance a little bit. I would like to do a show of hands, but I won't. 
We all have a natural skepticism because to hope is risky. She had hoped in five marriages. Each one, this is the one. We aren't told if the husband dies or divorces her, but it's scandalous either way to have had five marriages. Finally, she's just living with somebody. Hope has been destroyed, and she is not really willing to accept it, so she resists. But point two, you have to hear this is important. She remains. Okay? In your, in your interaction with God, in your interaction with the gospel, there is resistance, but I love that she remains. She asks the next question. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, right? The well is deep. Where will you get this water? Right? She's staying there and she's asking this question. And Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. So here she is hearing a further promise that this person whom she's meeting, who she's calling sir, might have an avenue to this amazing reality. Oftentimes, I think we are resistant and we're nervous in our walks with the Lord um, because we're not sure he's going to open himself up to us. Have you ever had that fear? Have you ever thought, I would read my Bible more, but sometimes I read it and it doesn't make sense. And if I'm honest, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that maybe it doesn't make sense because I am not a believer. Have you ever had that thought? Or maybe I'm not anointed or there's something not right with me. Um, I want to tell you a story, and it's from the Bible. Most of mine will be from this morning. My, one of my favorite parables and follow-ups to the parables in the book of Mark where Jesus gives one of his first parables about the different types of soil. Right? You know the parable. I won't tell the whole parable now. But when he finishes the parable, most of the people walk away. They leave. Okay, and his disciples stay. And somewhere in there, Jesus says, let he who has ears hear, and let he who has eyes see. And I'm thinking, oh, I really want to be one of those people. Don't you? What if you're not? And you know what happens next? The disciples say, we listen to your parable, and we have zero idea what you're talking about. And you know what Jesus does? He explains the parable. Let me tell you what I was doing. Let me tell you about the soil. Let me tell you about what was going on there. It's not a riddle. It's simply this. Do you want to know more? I will gladly share it with you. And Jesus sat there and tells them about the parables. The ears and the eyes are not, can I understand wisely all the sayings of Jesus or everything written in my Bible without any study or help from a community or anybody else? No, it's rather, am I willing to stay? right? Are you willing to remain in the struggle? And then thirdly, we're moving just through these R's, right? You're going to hear different R's. We're at resist at first, you remain, but then you begin to recognize there's more to the situation. She was convinced that what they were really talking about was the physical water. But in verse 13, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's what he tells her. Now, 
I'm not sure of her Old Testament knowledge. Um, There's different debates on what the Samaritans would have known. What we do love about this woman is she's theologically minded. Like I love uh, in the passage, verses 16 to 26, she starts to engage in theological debate with Jesus, which is very amazing. But at this point, here's what we know. In the Old Testament, water uh, has quite a bit of symbolism. In Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And then famously in Jeremiah 2, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. What else have they done? They have dug cisterns for themselves, which sounds a lot like Ezekiel. In other words, cisterns are idols. It's, I'm going to go in, and in my heart, I'm going to develop places where I draw out my own life. Because to draw life from somewhere else outside of me is impossible without Christ. But even as Christians, it's very vulnerable, which we'll get to in a few moments. And what Jesus, what the Old Testament is promising is that one day, Sunday, will be this gospel reality that you will have access to the well of living water in Christ. And the most, I think, beautiful place that's written in the Old Testament, Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Buy wine and milk without money, without price. I, I just, for some reason, this memory came to me as I was reading that it's not that. You know the um, land run thing you do in Oklahoma at fifth grade? Ours rained out, so here we are inside like a place at Charles Haskell. But my favorite part of that whole thing was they handed you fake money, but you walked up and bought real candy. Like, that was amazing. Like, this is fake, but this is real. Real food, real milk, real wine, real life. And yet you didn't provide the the money. That's foreign. That's alien, right? Right? And in a few chapters, Jesus is going to do something amazing. He's going to go to this feast under, the, under a disguise for fear of his life. And at the very end of the feast, he's going to stand up and say this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he was speaking about the Holy Spirit. Now, I've, I've thought about that passage so many times. I have a feeling that when he stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, like, remember earlier, a couple weeks ago, I talked about the preamble to stories. You want to hear something hilarious? I heard another one the other day. Uh, you know what was amazing? And then they kind of lean in, and I'm thinking, it better be really good, because I'm going to listen to your story. I hope it's hilarious. Jesus stands up and risks a lot. Does anyone thirst? No, we're good. It's been a great feast. Or they lean in. I'm thirsty. Are you thirsty? So that's what Jesus is offering you. We resist it, but we remain. And now, because you've remained, you didn't leave, which I really appreciate. You're recognizing, wow, maybe this gospel is more powerful and more beautiful and more glorious 
than I've really understood. And so let's talk about the responses in our, in our few remaining minutes. The first response she has is a complete misunderstanding. And I want you to know every one of us struggles with this. Listen to her misunderstanding. You, you caught it, I'm sure, already. But she says, sir, that's kind of wrong, <laughs> right? He's not a sir, he's the Messiah, but that's okay. Give her the pass. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. So far, so good. And I don't want to have to come here every day and draw water. Like, that's what I'm after. I don't want to have to work every single day to come get water. I want you to take that away. Now, I think most of you who know the story or who really paid attention understand there's more to her going to draw water than simply the difficulty of it, right? Um, Almost every commentator I looked at would say that women in that time would go in groups, and in the morning when it was cooler, or the evening when it was cooler. And what you have is a social gathering. You have help, because it's heavy and deep and all the work, and it's a lot cooler and less taxing on your body. She's going at noon, why? Because of, of shame, right, of guilt. She knows her story. She knows what people think of her, and she's tired of the scoffing, and so she goes at the day. So when Jesus offers her living water, she doesn't realize what she's doing, but what she's really saying is, will you remove my guilt and shame? Will you remove this self-hatred I have? Will you remove these set of circumstances that make this the most miserable thing in the world? But unfortunately, in her misunderstanding, she's not wanting Jesus. She's just wanting things to be easier, And I think we start there, and that's okay. I want to invite you to start there. I come to church because I want my marriage to get better. I come to church and I drag my children because I want them to maybe hear the gospel. These are all great things. These are good things. I want my job to go better, and so I'm reading my scriptures in the morning. I'm praying. Like Oftentimes, our religious and Christian life begins to get stronger, but often we have these reasons that aren't necessarily right where we want them to be, right? And so I'm gonna press you a little bit to find out what the right responses are, and there's two. The first one is exposure. So I love the response that Jesus has. I'm gonna juxtapose his response with what I would do. I'm sitting at a coffee, someone tells me, yes, I wanna be a Christian. I want my you know, marriage to improve, I want my career to improve, I want my finances to improve. I'm gonna do this. File that away, and maybe six weeks down the road, eight weeks down the road, I'll talk to them about sin. But right now, this is a great beginning, right? That's what, Christ, that's what people do. What does Jesus say? Go call your husband and bring him here. And she answers him, and you know, you can just feel the weight. She was in this up moment. Things are going to get better. I'm going to have... Someone grab water for me every day at noon. This is perfect to, oh, he, oh, this exposure. I have no husband. I have no husband. And that itself isn't a problem, except, and it's even true, she says, or Jesus tells us. The problem is she's living with somebody, which in that culture, even in our culture, that's, you know, you would, Definitely encourage everyone to be married before living together. In that culture, it's like you are, you never do that. But she'd had five marriages already, as I've already mentioned and as the text mentions. And so what she's come up to is this exposure of shame. 
Now I want to talk about shame for just a minute. Shame is a word you find all through scriptures. There's a, there's a pretty good semantic range on the meaning of shame, but here's how I use it and think of it, okay? When you do something wrong, that's guilt, right? I should not have done that. Shame is then my beginning to see myself as a person who does that thing. You'll hear it a lot in culture. Um, someone tells a lie in, in the newscaster or, or someone will say, see, they're, they're a liar. Like this politician's a liar. Someone will use that terminology. Wait, because they lied? They're now a liar? And then we're all liars, right? And we're all murderers and we're all lusters and adulterers because we've all sinned. And so shame is your inner engine telling yourself, I'm bad, I'm evil, I'm unlovable because of my sin. Now, if you don't have Christ, it's the only real way you can operate. Or, as M. Scott Peck talks about in The Road Less Traveled, uh, he's a psychiatrist and he deals with, he says, all types of psychiatric, psychiatric issues. Thank you. Um, but he says it all whittles down to one of two major areas. Self-contempt, I hate myself. And so all of my stuff comes out of that. Or others' contempt. I hate other people. I'm doing everything right. Um, he does say those people are harder to help, but they thankfully the gospel can help us both. The point is this. Where is your shame driving you? What are the places you're hiding in? How are you either pretending like I'm not my parents? Like my parents were that and I'm way different. So you're in a way shame's making you appear and seek to be better or maybe your shame is causing you to try to live a life where you're just gonna go through the motions and you're never gonna be okay because who could love you anyway? Do you see those, those processes in your life? Now here's the deal. A lot of you are going, Ryan, I don't really struggle with that. I mean, I hear you, and I know people who do, but I don't struggle with that. That's great, and I really, really hope it's true, but to the degree you don't struggle with that, you're gonna respond like this woman did. So the question then is, how are you worshiping? That's our final thought. Exposure leads to worship. The healing of the water leads to her response of worship. What I love is that for her, uh, and for Jesus, the water that is this well that never ends is only tasty when you are extremely thirsty. Now, he does say you will never thirst, but he doesn't say you'll never want to drink water. Do you see the difference? He means you'll never thirst like you'll never not have water available in Christ. So here you are. Um, you're in the desert. You've gone three days without water. You've made it to some home. You've knocked on the door. They've opened the door and they have a glass of clean, fresh water, a cup of coffee, your favorite adult beverage, and a Dr. Pepper. What are you going to grab? I'm going to go with that water. I'm dying of thirst. Those other things are great when things are going well, but right now, I want pure water. Jesus, the pure water, is beautiful when you're thirsty. Right? Not because he's only there for thirst, but because this side of heaven, you are thirsty. In heaven, you will not be quenched, you will not be thirsty with sin. You will be living and worship face-to-face, -face, communion with the triune God. But this side of heaven, you are thirsty. 
And if you're not exposing that reality to the Lord privately in worship, um, if that's not being revealed to you and then repented of, then we're just going to be like that woman and we're going to go to the, the well at noon every day and call that our, our existence and say, this is what I do. And someone says, why do you go at noon? And you say, you know what, I like the heat. It's kind of weird. It's a family. My, my mom liked the heat. My dad liked the heat. So he's always, I don't know, we've always done it at noon. Really? Hmm. And the best part of the story for me is when the disciples come back, they are marveling. Well, let me, I'm sorry, let's back up one verse. She gets into a theological debate with him. So she's heard about her sin, it's been exposed, but she's not quite willing to confess that she needs the gospel. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, the Messiah. And now she can admit that she has broken places that she needs to be healed. And what does she do? She goes in verse 28, leaving her water jar. That could have two thoughts. Either one, I'm so filled with living water, I no longer need physical water, which is most likely what's going on. But there's also the very real possibility, I'll be back. And Jesus, I want you to be able to draw water. Your disciples have returned. And I'm going to go do something. I'm going to go worship. And she worships. That's your response. You ex- the exposure and worship. And then for her, worship was going into the town. It, 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 you have to just process this. She's walking up to people. Like she won't even look you in the eye yesterday. She won't even look you in the eye this morning. And now she's going to walk up to you at your shop and look you in the eye and say, guess what just happened? I just met a person who knew everything about me. Right? He knew everything I ever did. What? How long did you sit with that guy? Like 42 days? To tell him your whole life story? Or is the fact that when your deepest secret is exposed and forgiven, you feel completely known and completely loved, and it respond, you respond in worship? You naturally respond in excitement. The way you are designed as a human being made in the image of God is to share good things with people. That's what we do. That's why when you go skiing, I see it on Facebook. That's why when we went skiing, you saw it on Facebook. It's like, I can't just be up here. I've got to tell the world. There might be a little bit of bragging in that. But for the most part, that's how humans are built. I just saw the greatest movie. So when Jesus comes to you, you've tasted his water, and your deepest shameful area, at least that you're aware of in that moment, is exposed, and he loves you and forgives you. And in the words of Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, you respond in worship. So I've gone a little bit over my normal time, but I will say this. How do you worship? How do we get there? Um, I would encourage you to do these steps that we've just walked through in your scripture. In Hebrews 4, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us the word of God is living and active. That means the spirit attends to your reading of scripture. And when you read the scripture, um, spending time in a certain passage, meditating on it, chewing on it, it will change you. And I've told you this story before. I'll just close with my own personal story of John 6, where um, 
I had sort of an assignment from my wife. Hey, you ought to read John 6 to the boys. They were young, and uh, they were going through BSF, I think, and, so, and I was kind of working through some of it anyway, so I read it to them. They went off to school, and I'm sitting there in my study. That's what you call it when you're a pastor. I thought, I don't get that, that chapter at all. I just read a chapter that makes no sense. And it made me nervous. I, the resistance, I felt nervous. But then I remained and said, Lord, will you show me what this passage means? And I began, and I, I was very fearful. I don't know if you know, at the end of John 6, there's a place where he says, I'm the bread of life. And uh, the audience, everyone hears that he's saying, you have to eat of his body and drink of his blood. And they leave him. They like abandon him. And so um, I felt that tension, but I remained and I felt like the Spirit opened my eyes to recognize the beauty of the gospel in the passage and to respond through repentance and worship. So that would be my outline for you as you move toward Jesus in your scriptures, in your daily lives, to be revived again by living water. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is living and active because you are in it. Um, we long to see you face to face. We long to be with you um, for the rest of eternity. And yet, Lord, in some ways, if we're honest, that scares us because we don't fully know of your goodness. There's parts of us that still think we might be rejected, that maybe that thought, that sin, that idol, or just that lack of care is not fixable by you. And yet you promise living water. So I pray that we would come and drink and come and buy and come and eat at your well. Knowing that you are a good father, you are a good savior and your spirit draws us in and calls us to yourself and provides the meal for us. Help us receive this by faith every day for your glory. Amen.